You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. We're going to talk even more about that. I want to invite you to Psalm chapter 111. Every, every summer so far, um, our church has made a habit of preaching through, studying through the Psalms, as we like to make the Psalms the song of our church, the song of the summer, um, if you will. Because these are the songs that God saw fit to give to us as he reveals himself to us through his word. And so I want to invite you there to Psalm chapter 111. And this psalm, uh, many psalms list their author here. This one doesn't. We don't know uh, who authored this psalm, but um, there's some familiar phrases from, from how David likes to write. There's also some familiar phrases from how his son Solomon likes to write. Um, no need to speculate for sure, but um, let's read together chapter Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright and in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. So Psalm 111 is just as Psalm 112 is following it, an alphabetical acrostic. So there's, you, you'll probably see 10 verses there. There's 22 lines, and each of those begin with in alphabetical order of the Hebrew alphabet, the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And so we can take note from there that it's something to be remembered. You know, it's like a, it's a device that we use to remember things, just as song and verses. The way that I would summarize this psalm, which I'll do for us before we dig in, kind of following verse by verse, is that Psalm 111 sings of the wondrous works of God, both in his accomplishments in creation and what he has accomplished in redemption. It harkens back to the exodus of the Israelites, including the Passover and their travel through the Red Sea on dry land, which speaks now to us in Jesus and the paralleled new covenant One of the biggest ways that this psalm interacts with us is in the way it declares and describes God, 
which is almost systematically exposes the ways that we believe we are sufficiently like God and don't need him. This psalm becomes the song of his people who believe. And participating in the singing of this song is to participate in an, ex- in an eternal blessing, a song that never ends. So, first things first, it's important to know that this is a song, right? It's not just um, words on a page, and it's not just God revealing himself to us in his written word. It's meant to be sung. It's important to remember every time you read a psalm that it's not just the theology there, but that it's also intended to be sung. And so put that in the back of your mind as we go through this and, and ask yourself, why, why is this meant to be sung? Why is this meant to be remembered as a song? And now each of these verses kind of build off of each other and a song crescendos. I'll use musical terms there because it is a song, but it crescendos both maybe musically, although I haven't heard the actual tune it was given originally, and it also crescendos in, in theology, in, in what it's talking about, in the depths of the, of the words that are there. And so stick with me, bear with me as we work through this verse by verse. We'll let the psalm kind of guide us through the study here. Stick with me in the beginning as it starts off slower and gains momentum. So let's begin in verse 1. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright and in the congregation. This is a song. It's a psalm of praise. First, personal and committed, and secondly, corporate with the congregation. And I want to invite you into the same thing that I invite the worship team into, which is to to major in both of those areas. Every Sunday morning we get to worship together corporately and I I invite the worship team and I extend this now to you to dwell on the songs that we're going to sing, to dwell on the songs that are in the Bible and to meditate on those also personally, maybe even in the order that this psalm gives, with my whole heart in a committed way and then in the company of the congregation. That's all of us. Verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Now, the, uh, what we confess or, or don't confess, because this, this is a confession here, this confession is of his greatness, specifically what he has done. What he has accomplished is great. By this we can surely know the psalmist is talking about the greatness of God visible in the accomplishments of his creation, the the magnificence of of who we see God to be in what he has created. And we can also see it in a few specific works that he has done, which he digs the psalmist digs into more later. So think of it this way. The psalm, the scope of this song is the greatness of God visible in his works. So the entire scope of this song is the greatness of God visible in his works. So there's a number of works listed in this psalm and we are going to get to study each of them as they reveal the character of God and what that means for us. They're studied by all who delight in his works. Letting that speak for itself, those who are captivated, those who are captivated by the character and works of God, 
by the greatness of God and what he has done to the point of delight, study him and his works. And so it's my hope, this is my aim this morning, my hope is that this will cause you to be captivated by the works of God so much that you, can, that you come to delight and to study them for the purpose of knowing him and praising him. So with that in mind, let's continue on. Verse 3, full of splendor and majesty is his works, and his righteousness endures forever. Continues to describe his work, full of splendor and majesty. His goodness is not only pleasant and true, but eternal. Verse 4, he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. So he's caused his works to be remembered here. Set that aside for a second. What does that describe about him? He is a communicative. He's a communal God. He desires to be known by us. He desires to reveal himself to us. He's a glorious and awesome God is another way you could describe him. He delights to be known and remembered and worshipped. And he's gracious and merciful. We not only know that he is what he is by what he has done, but we, we know that he's mer- merciful and gracious, which is a way you can describe him in a way that what, what that means to us. Verse 5, he provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. Now let's set those two verses next to each other, verse 4 and verse 5. See how these build off of each other as we learn more about the character of God. Verse 4 a call back to what he has done, which he causes us to remember, and then he is gracious and merciful. And then in verse 5, he is a provider on the daily basic level. He feeds his people, and then he remembers his covenant forever. Now we're talking about something bigger here, right? A covenant. The psalmist is connecting the works of the Lord from the past, something they and we remember, they being the original hearers and singers of this psalm, He's connecting that to a covenant, to his covenant with his people. Don't miss that. The comparison between verse 4 and verse 5, how that reveals the, the character of God in comparison to us, his people. Think of it this way. He causes us to remember. He reminds us. And he always remembers his covenant. He never forgets. He is faithful. We are forgetful. In learning the character of God, it also speaks to our own character. And the comparison of the two is important for continuing on. So, you might be asking, because this psalm was written a long time ago, for a specific people, and they're talking about some specific things here. What are they talking about? Let's, let's address that first, and then we'll look at maybe what that means for us now. What might these singers of this song, when it was originally written, be referring to? Well, these are the Israelites, and their immediate heritage is that they, and, and history is that they were captive. They were slaves in Israel, or sorry, in Egypt. And God sent deliverance to them. He delivered them from Egypt to the promised land, to a place that he had promised to take them. And sort of the the final 
event that happened before the Exodus, before they left Egypt, was a blood covenant, if you will. It was an act of God involving a sacrifice, a spilling of blood, that marked a covenant with his people, a covenant that he never forgets. The Passover is still remembered today. And then the Exodus, he provided a way out for them. And then when they were in the desert, he provided food for them. Remember verse 5, he provides food for those who fear him. In the desert, he, he literally brought down food from heaven, bread from heaven, to feed them along the way. And he brought them to the promised land. So who is God in this? He's a provider. He's a covenant keeper. Let's continue on, and we'll begin to apply this now to us. Verse 6, he says, He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. So immediately following that history, think the promised land, the inheritance. But, think about that for a second. He gives them the inheritance. Who has the ability to give an inheritance? Who has the ability to gift an inheritance to someone? Who else but a father? What do we learn about God here? It's that his character and relationship towards us can be described as a father in the way that he provides, keeps his promises, and gifts an inheritance. And pause for a second. Maybe, maybe father is an unhelpful example here. This is, the, this is a true, true word um, that is, is meant to be used. But maybe your father, maybe my father, maybe that there's some unhelpful examples with your own experience of an earthly father. But here, think a perfect father. He's revealed himself to us through his works. And what we learned is that he is a perfect father. And what does that say about who we are to him? Children. His children. Verse 7 and 8 together, I'll read them. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. His precepts are trustworthy. They're established forever and ever and are, are to be performed with faith, faithfulness and uprightness. Now, I think there is a general mistrust on our behalf between the alleged goodness of God and the precepts of God. Now, precepts, maybe we don't use that word a lot, just looking at some dictionaries, precepts are rules, a command or principle intended especially as a general rule of action. That's what Merriam-Webster says, or Oxford Dictionary says, is a rule about how to behave or what to think. So I believe that it's common for us to have, in one moment, an idea of who God is in regards to his precepts, the way he made the world. He's the creator. He made the world to be a certain way. This is how it ought to be. He, he establishes rules, and he is just in that way. And so we're fine with having that view of God, even if we don't like that, even if we, don't, if we disagree with that, but it's conceivable. And then at, at another moment, we have this idea that God is good. He, 
He loves his people. He's kind. He's generous. He, he blesses his people. But I think it's common for us to separate those views of God and not think of his precepts and his justness as being good and blessing for us. And why do you think that is? Why do you think we tend to separate those two? Why do you think we tend to know better? Understanding our history, our family tree, if you will, I think helps explain this. So it's often helpful for me, and I commend this to you, when studying scripture to zoom out, scroll to the beginning, scroll to the end, and then zoom back in with uh, context in mind. So let's do that real quick. Genesis 3. I'm going to read Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. You're welcome to follow me there if you like, or just listen. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So, how did we get here? How do we begin to mistrust God? How, we, how do we begin to separate the idea that God is good and that he is right? The root of the fall and our current disposition as a broken people in a broken world is that we believe the lie that says we can be like God. And I want you to hear that for a second because I think this is why a psalm like Psalm 111 is so important for us. We believe a lie that says we can be like God. So I, in studying this over the last couple of weeks, have been thinking on my own life and, and letting it impact me. And I, I put together a list of 10 ways that I believe that I'm like God. I actually put it down into four categories, um, four ways that I believe that I'm like God. Uh, I don't know all of your hearts intimately, and so I would love to make a list of the 10 ways that all of you tend to believe that you're like God, but instead, I can only use myself as an example, and I hope that you'll be able to relate to this and apply it to your own life. So, there are four ways, four categories that I tend to believe that I am like God, or that I am God. Number one, I believe I know what is best for me. I believe I know best what I need to live, and I believe I know best what will satisfy me. Maybe that or something like it is true for you. The second way that I tend to believe that I am God 
It's I believe that I can attain what I believe is best for me. I believe that somehow I have or should have the ability to attain, to earn, to gain what I believe is best for me. Maybe you can relate. The third way that I believe that I am like God is that I believe I must be right. Right? I believe I define what is right and good. If I was wrong, I would lose more arguments with my wife, right? I believe my view of justice is the way it should be, and anyone who disagrees with me must be a fool. I believe, this is the fourth thing, I believe I am awesome. Now, it hurts to say, nobody likes to hear somebody else say that. It makes you cringe, right? But I believe that I am awesome in that I want the glory. I want the credit. I want the praise for who I am, what I've done, what I've accomplished. Only the good things, though, if there are any. And maybe that doesn't apply. Maybe you have low self-esteem. Maybe you are down on yourself. It's still the same belief, only you could say it like this. The times that I don't, I believe that I should be. I believe that my right position in the world is that I am awesome, and if I'm not, I'm discontent. Now, this psalm speaks directly to each of these. And so we'll apply those in a second, but listen to this. We have been subject to and part of an age-old curse that believes we can be like God. And here's the hope that this psalm gives us. But we are called to be a part of an eternal blessing that sings of the one true God. We have been subject to, we've been part of an age-old curse that is rooted on the idea that we can be like God, and it's a belief that we tend to carry with us. But this psalm invites us into singing about and describing the one true God, even, comparison, even drawing comparisons between the vast differences between us and God. And we're invited into singing and belonging and being a part of that blessing that declares the greatness of the one true God. So, after you made a list of those four things, after you've been dwelling on the ways that you tend to believe like your God, and after I just crushed hopefully, your dreams that you are not God. If we're not God, if we're not like God, if we don't actually have that ability, if that is, in fact, a lie from the devil, who is God and what is he like? And I believe that is what Psalm 111 is for as God has revealed to us through his works. It's so important to know who God is when we realize that we're not him. If we don't know who God is, and the doubt creeps in when, when we begin to doubt the lie that we're God, then we are absolutely lost without the truth of knowing who God actually is. So it is so important to know who God is when we realize we are not Him. And I'm not just talking about a once and for all, first time, 
realizing, light bulb moment, I'm not God, this is who God is, and this is what he likes. I'm talking about the everyday, every week, regular rhythms of your life. If we are not saturating our lives with the truth of who God is, then in those moments of doubt, when we're left without words like the ones from Psalm 111, then we are, we are lost because we know that we are God and we forget who God is and what he is like. So it's important to know who God is when we realize that we're not him. And in believing the lie that we are like God or can be like God, we tend to limit our view of God into the way that we are aware of our own finite and our own limitations. But God's not subject to what we, with our finite minds, believe. And this might touch home for some of you, as I know it does for me. There may be many who profess these truths even here about God and then later walk away from the faith and deny him. You probably know somebody like this. And it's almost as if God existed when they believed. But as doubt or the worship of other things crept in and they ceased to believe, God ceased to exist for them. But here's the thing that Psalm 111 draws me, and I hope you, to believe is that God has been and will forever be who he is according to his own being, who he says he is, and not what we choose to believe about him. And that should cause us to fear him. So I, I told you to put a pin in the, the fear uh, language that's mentioned a couple times here. I, I want to even point to verse 10 where it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is why. Because God is who he says he is and not what we might believe about him in our own finite understanding, thinking that we're like God, so we, we think God is the same way. And this is why it's important to fear him, to revere him, because he is who he says he is. And those who practice that have good understanding. In fearing the Lord, in knowing and recognizing who he is and what he has done, in comparison to us, we see that reverence is accompanied with provision and mercy and graciousness and redemption and justice. So, who is God that Psalm 111 talks about? Who is he? What is he like? Let's follow through what we've learned already and apply the first few verses. He's powerful. You can see it in what he has done, what he has made, and the things that he's done with his people. He's full of splendor and majesty. He is righteous and eternal. He is a relational God. He wants, to know, be, he wants us to know and remember that He is God. He is gracious and merciful. He provides food. He takes care of us on the very basic level. He is faithful and true. He never forgets His covenant. And what He says, He does. 
remember those things about who God is. Let's continue on in verse 9. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his, commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. This is why it is so wonderful to know and believe in what God says and what he does. So the same God here who delivered the Israelites, who caused the Israelites to remember his deliverance and provision, who was always faithful and never forgot his covenant, is the same God who causes us to remember our deliverance and salvation through Jesus. And I know I just spoiled it, but he's the same God who causes us to remember our own deliverance through Jesus, and that was the seal, the once and for all guarantee that he would never forget his covenant with us. It's because he is gracious and merciful and just that he does this. And now here's the crux, I think, of the whole psalm and how it applies to us. The reason why this is a merciful and gracious and just act is because we were created to be worshipers, not gods. We were created to worship God, not try to be God. And I think it is extremely profound to understand the origins in, in Genesis chapter 3 that the devil knew his best shot at trying to mess up God's plan was to corrupt that distinction, our identity as worshipers of God rather than trying to be like God. And this is the final and, and great work talked about in the psalm. Redemption. This is the last of many works that are, that are listed here. And account, on account of all the characteristics that we know from this psalm, on account of his splendor and majesty, on account of his righteousness which endures forever, on account of his faithfulness, on account of his grace and mercy, and on account of his provision, he has sent redemption to us through Jesus because of his covenant to his people, which stands forever. On account of all of these things, he has redeemed us back to our created purpose. See, the connection there of the promised land, of the inheritance, is not only peace and happiness and contentness, but it is in that our identity as worshipers is restored, rather than the corruption of us trying to be God we're restored back to worshipers of God. This whole long and messy story from Adam and Eve all the way to us is a story of mercy and justice and provision, redemption. And it's all despite what we, the people, have done. It's all because he is God, and that is what he is like. Throughout history of the curse that we are responsible for and subject to, God has made a plan of redemption for his people. A parallel story occurring at the same time as the broken and messy cursed one. 
This is a redemption story through the broken and messy, cursed one. Now, the best example that I can think of for you, hopefully, is a good one for all of us and not just nerdy me, but I'm a huge fan and listener of the great works of the still-living classical composer by the name of Hans Zimmer. He is a musical composer for films primarily, and his works are amazing. And you've probably heard them, even if you don't know his name. And the way he composes his scores, and many other do this also, he writes scores usually with a familiar hook, a line, a lead line, a little melody line that, that kind of punches out above the rest of the music that is really memorable. A recognizable melody, a combination that becomes a theme in his music. And that is usually paired with the main character, the soon-to-be hero of the story. And he usually teases that theme toward the beginning of the story as if to say, this is what the story is going to be about. This is the main character. This is, pay attention to this. And as he composes the piece, I've seen some behind-the-scenes things. He actually gets to watch the movie that's mostly made as, as he gets to sort of write and time everything out. As he continues to compose on, he teases this theme out, this hook line, through key parts. He might play it in a minor key when something is, is uh, when there's the, um, the conflict and the rising action, and he'll tease it in there throughout, but, but always in a way that, that draws you to want more. It's, it's not enough. It's only a little bit of the, of the song of the melody. And then all of a sudden... The story has reached its climax, and the main character has become the hero of the story, and the melody and the orchestra joins in, and all the instruments play this hook line, this melody line that you've been teased with throughout the whole story, and it's as if to say the music paired with the story and the victory of the hero that this is done. This ha- we have arrived. It's complete. Now, similarly, when we read the story of the Bible, amidst the cold and dark musical score of the fall and the curse and the turning from God and rebellion and death, there is a lead line, a hook line, if you will, teased from the beginning. Think John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word talking about Jesus. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then all throughout the scriptures, this theme is teased and you hear pieces or types of redemption and kings and saviors and heroes all throughout scripture, but always only in a way that sort of whets your appetite and makes you want more. It's never enough. And then the hero is born. And the melody of hope and saving power has a name, and that name is Jesus. And the whole of the orchestra begins to join in, and our hero begins to make his stand, and finally, redemption is at hand. And with a thunderous halt, our hero is killed, and the music stops. 
and there's three days of silence. But then, through the silence, the melody starts to be heard, and it's clearer than ever, and the whole orchestra joins in, and the victory that we thought was lost is now definitely won. And the trumpets play, and every voice joins in, and the symphony is complete as Jesus is king and reigns over everything. And guess what? The song never ends. His praise endures forever. And that's why holy and awesome is his name as an exclamation mark at the end of verse 9 because it is impossible to say he has sent redemption to his people, he has commanded his covenant forever, and not say holy and awesome is his name afterwards. So I get really excited about this and I invite you to do the same as well. Song and singing, and this is why I use a musical analogy for us, they play a big part in the big picture, in the whole story. There's a symphony of creation singing the praises to God and telling of his marvelous works from the moment he created the heavens and the earth. And his creation is described as a song that points to his power and ability to create, his character in creating beautiful things. And all throughout the scripture, the song continues from the mouths of those who know and believe in him. You can follow throughout scripture the praises of the people who know God, who God reveals himself to them. All the way until the last book, and there's a snapshot into what will be and what will continue on throughout eternity, making this psalm true, his praise endures forever, which is a multitude of redeemed souls Voices, singing praises. Worthy are you, Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now listen to this, though. Because I used Hans Zimmer as an example, and the beauty of the cellos and the, the song, the music itself, in this symphony that I'm talking about, that is creation singing of the greatness of God, the beauty isn't in the cellos or the horns or the perfect tuning of the violins. The beauty of this song is in that every voice is declaring Jesus as the one who is worthy of praise. It's in the fine tuning of each heart worshiping the very thing that they were created, that we are created to worship. We have been subject to the curse from ages past as a result of our own sin, but we are given a song of redemption, a song that stands for eternity and lasts forever because his praise endures forever. So I'm going to invite us to pray now and declare Jesus as the center of our praise. God, we look to you now and we confess that in hearing and knowing and being exposed to who you say you are, we see some common comparisons to the way that we tend to believe the lie that we can be like you. And although you have created us in your image in a marvelous way to reflect your glory, we oftentimes desire 
to receive that glory ourselves. And so I thank you that you have written things down. I thank you that you have given us words and songs, even in alphabetical order, to know who you are. Lord, thank you for revealing yourself to us in a way that is memorable. So I pray for every soul here that you would remind us. Thank you for your promise that you will remind us. Lord, would you remind us that you are God and you are good, that your precepts are trustworthy. Lord, thank you for your redemption through Jesus. Thank you that you did not leave us in the silence, in the dark, that you saw fit to sacrifice your own son so that we might be redeemed back to you. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness in your covenant keeping. Lord, we are so terrible at keeping covenants, and you are so faithful. Thank you that our hope stands on the covenant that you have made, that it doesn't stand on our ability to keep a covenant, but it stands on your ability to keep a covenant, Lord, because you are God, and your covenant you remember forever. Thank you that we get to join in a song that means something. Thank you that we get to join in a song about a Savior who actually saves, a Savior who was raised from the dead, who stands forever and is our King. Lord, thank you for this wonderful good news. We declare you, we declare Jesus as the Savior. We declare Jesus as the hero of this story. It is in your name that we pray and believe and now sing Amen.